The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Two stories that give us an insight into what happens to us after we die. And then we take a look at the story of a Russian town that captured a Bigfoot-like creature and held it prisoner for 40 years, today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you're having a great day too. Man, the show just in the last week has really taken off. I'm getting like 800 downloads a day. Got an extra 110 subscribers on YouTube just over the past five days. It's it's growing, and I appreciate that, guys. And I'm thankful that you guys are all listening to it, recommending it to your friends, recommending it to strangers. It's really, really taking off, and I appreciate that. I really do. I also wanted to say I got some more fan art uh, earlier this week from Ben via email. We'll post it in the show notes, and then it'll be in the YouTube video. Apparently, he's actually making a... Power, what he called a PowerPoint-level animation of the Thomas Dick episode. So yes, Mungo. Mungo is in the episode, and so those drawings are there. I appreciate all that fan art. It's amazing, guys. Thank you. I never really thought... Oh! um, No, no, no. I'll save that till Monday. I'll save that till Monday. I got this other weird piece of information that I'll talk about on Monday involving the show, but we got a lot of stuff to cover today, so I can't... Thank you, Ben. Um, but yeah, I, I just can't keep going on about how awesome you guys are. Sorry. <laughs> so, because people do, I got I to gotta do the episode. We got a lot to cover. So the first thing we're going to look at is conflicting ideas of what happens after you're dead. Now, obviously, that's something that religion has. You either go to most religions. Some of you are reincarnated, but you go to a paradise or you go to a hell, a punishment place. Now, recently I found this creepypasta, and some of you guys may have already heard about this, but I found some interesting details about it and wanted to give you my own take on it. The photo is a naked man holding an ice block and what appears to be poop, and notably a micro Korg keyboard in the upper left-hand corner. Now, I can't put the photo on YouTube because they'll just take the video down because the dude's naked, but I'll have it in the show notes. But let me read you this creepypasta here real quick. This isn't a creepypasta channel, but I think it's interesting to dissect this because there's some weird stuff going on. Clifford Hoyt, age 31, suffered serious injuries in an automobile accident in 1999. After he regained consciousness, he told a terrified nurse that he had died and visited hell. He expounded on the tortures and anguish he experienced in frightening detail. He refused psychological treatment and was released. Several weeks later, Hoyt's neighbors complained to their landlord that strange music was playing in his apartment at all hours of the night. Upon investigating, the building's owner found Clifford in this condition, so the photograph. He's naked, he's holding an ice block, there's a bunch of poop, and there's a micro-corg in the background. He left and contacted Mr. Hoyt's family, who contacted authorities. Clifford claimed that demons from hell were still trying to capture him. He explained that his body would burn incessantly unless he played music to scare the demons away. He would only leave the house for short periods of time to get minimal supplies, including large blocks of ice, to soothe the burning he felt as he tried to sleep. 
Doctors attribute Clifford's actions to brain damage suffered in the accident. He currently resides in a mental rehabilitation facility in Maryland. So I came across this. It's it's a kind of older creepypasta, but I just came across this pretty recently. I was like, oh, that's creepy, but it's most likely fake. So I immediately started tracking where this came from. Now, here's the interesting stuff about this. Again, I don't just want to read creepypasta. I thought that I read that and I was like, I've heard people saying that when they die, they've had life after death experiences of going to hell. They're far more rare, but you do see them. But here's the thing, the micro, so this this apparently happened in 1999. The microcorg was not invented until 2002. So whether or not the story is true, the photo isn't. The photo was not taken in 1999. Secondly, there was really a Clifford Hoyt. His name is actually Gary Clifford Hoyt. And he had a car accident in 1999. But he died in that car accident. He, he was the single fatality of that car accident. The other two people in the other car uh, survived. So there really was a guy named Clifford Hoyt, full name Gary Clifford Hoyt. And he did have a serious car accident, but he died. This is what this was my take on this, that it's most likely just creepypasta that they either they picked that name out at random and it happened to match or more likely somebody knew of that car accident and created this story. But here's my little take on this. What if this is almost like a Carnival of Souls type of thing? Now, Carnival of Souls is that is that movie where, spoiler alert, it's like 40, 50 years old, but this woman drive, gets in a car accident, and then she gets out of the car, and she goes to this town, and it's super creepy, and there's a bunch of ghosts chasing her around. And at the ending, it turns out that she really died in the car accident all along. And But people interacted with her while she was not knowing she was dead. So was it all in her head? The people she was interacting were they real? Maybe this is a, a example of that. I know that sounds super far fetched, but I, it's just this, the the story is weird to me. I don't know. I don't know. Like I read it, and I when I was doing my research, I thought I I feel like there's a little bit more to this than just the standard creepypasta. Did he both die in that car accident? Continue to live to have these horrible hallucinations? And end up in a mental institution, but really, he died in the car accident? I don't know if I'm making sense, but yeah. like, And would we know? Like, Could this possibly be a Mandela effect type situation where reality has splintered and we have a foot in both realities? The one where he died and the one where he's locked up. Probably, probably not. Probably not, but I thought it, I think it's an interesting story. And again, there's just something still not sitting right with me. But going for I read that, and the next day I read this other article about life after death. Very, very fascinating thing going on. So now we're going from wherever this dude died because I didn't write that down in my notes. We're going to New York State, the Big Apple, the state that never sleeps. We're going to a place called Hospice Buffalo. Which, that's the name of it, Hospice Buffalo. Now, it's not a hospice in the shape of a buffalo, which would be where I would want to die. I think it's just a hospice in the city of Buffalo. And they just name stuff really badly. Over there, there's a guy named Dr. Kerr. And he sounds like a bad guy. He sounds like he is like an old-timey villain for an old-timey Batman. But Dr. Kerr is actually a guy running this hospice. And one time he was sitting there and he's thinking, you know what, I think I could let this patient live longer if I changed the IV, like if I gave them a different IV thing. And he's thinking about it. So he went to get the patient and the nurse was with the patient and he goes, hey, I think I'm going to set up this new IV thing. And the nurse goes, let me get her actual quote here because this was a real event. 
Dr. Kerr says, I walked in and the nurse didn't even look up. And she said, no, no, he's dying. And I said, why are you saying that? And she said, well, he's seen his deceased mother. And Dr. Kerr said he just kind of laughed, kind of chuckled, like, you know. And the man died shortly after that. And he started to notice a pattern. His staff, because he was running everything, so he'd see the patients, but he wasn't in that day-to-day seeing every patient all the time. His staff knew when people were going to die. Not in a creepy Final Destination sort of way, but they had gotten used to when people start talking about seeing their mom or seeing their sister or seeing people who had passed before them. The nurses all knew he's, they're going to be dead in a, in a short while, a couple weeks, a couple days maybe. And so Dr. Kerr said, you know what, let's start recording these incidents. Let's see if there's any sort of patterns. So for 10 years at Hospice Buffalo, they've started recording these incidents. 14,000 cases. 80% of the people who pass away have a dream or a vision where a loved one comes back to them. And they've actually been able to identify certain themes. And he said one of the most common themes is travel. They'll have dreams where they're packing their bags. So weird. And he goes, their their body is old and broken, but their brains are still very, very active. So they'll start seeing their mom or their brother or their best friend who passed away before them. They'll dream about them. They'll see them in the room sometimes with a vision. And then they'll start having dreams where they're packing stuff up, getting ready for a journey, a long journey. Now, these aren't just the people who are having these dreams also say they're incredibly detailed. They're the most incredibly detailed dreams they've ever had. They wake up sobbing because they're seeing someone that they miss. And the person is bringing a sense of peace to them. And it's funny because the reporter asked Dr. Kerr, so what do you think the scientific explanation for this? Or do you think it's a religious explanation for this? And his response was, it doesn't really matter. Like, I don't know, and it doesn't matter. He says they should just be respected, period. As far as, like, these experiences they're going through, just respect that these people are actually having them. The saddest thing in it, because it's very heart, it's very heartlifting. Is that a word? It's very affirming to know that, that you see those people who left before you helping you on that journey. I thought this was the saddest part of the story. Little kids, <laughs> little kids who they're young, so they haven't had they haven't had a lot of loss in their life. You know, you're six, you're seven, and your parents are still around, your best friends are still around, your grandparents are still around. They dream about their pets. They dream about any pets that they've lost, little puppies. Isn't that that is so sad? But it's sad to me, but again, it's affirming to that little boy or that little girl who's kind of scared because they're passing away, but then they see their little puppy, Rover, and they just dream that they're petting their puppy that they lost two years ago, and they're just, they that makes them at peace, that makes them at peace as their body is failing when they sleep, they're playing with their puppy that they're soon going to be reunited with. The, the the big question is this, and, and so that those studies are going on, and they're not being done in any sort of scientific way. They're just logging these dreams and visions. The big question is this. This is what happens to people who are dying in a hospice situation. 
what happened? Is there something similar to this if your head gets chopped off or you fall off a bridge or you get riddled with bullets in a drug deal gone wrong? Like, is there a correlation between these two things? I would think yes. And this is, again, going back to the whole Carnival of Souls type thing. Like, let's say I'm sitting in my apartment and a bunch of gangbangers raid it and just blow my brains out. That event is going to take a total of three minutes. From the point where they knock down the door to the point that I snap two of their necks and stab another one in the chest, do a witty one-liner, throw them out the window, and then the shotgun's to the back of my head and I'm like, damn it. As that bullet enters my brain, I almost think that the brain runs into a bullet time mode and I'm able to have those same affirming experiences. I think at the moment that you die, whether it takes three weeks for you to die or three seconds for you to die, I think your brain still processes that. And my backup for that is when you dream, dreams seem like they're hours or months or I've had dreams that have lasted decades. But it really was only three seconds in my brain that was shooting that spark. But to me, it felt like 70 years in my dream. So I do think that's possible. I think that in the moment of death, like the horrible torture you go through will probably be, I shouldn't say will, but let's say that you're, you're, you fall into a wheat thresher, feet first. That's awful, but I think at the last moment you do find that peace. As fleeting as it may seem, physically, mentally, it is on par of a little girl holding her puppy. I think at the moment of death, you are at peace in your brain. It gives you, it gives you a good dream. I don't think anyone ever really dies horribly. But now let's go to the world of cryptids. Yes, yes, cryptids. Because we've talked a lot about cryptids this week, and we talked about Zermatism earlier, and he was saying Stanislav, was not Stanislav, Stanislav was saying that all over the world there are stories of Bigfoot-esque creatures. And he named off a couple of them. The Woodwows in Britain and a bunch of other ones. Now, one of the ones he named off was the Almas of Mongolia, a Bigfoot-esque creature. I started looking around at a couple of them, and there is a story from the 1870s of an Alma that was actually captured. So let's go back in time to the 1870s. Let's get in the carpenter copter. Actually, no, that'll probably bring too much attention. Let's go ahead and hop in the Jason Jalopy. That'll be a little more bit of subterfuge, because we don't want to get captured by these people either. We go into the Jason Jalopy. We go back in time. We're in the 1870s. We're in Russia, far east Russia, Mongolian area. So I should have told you to grab your jacket because it's going to get really cold out here. But it's too late, so you're probably going to get frostbite. These are the remote forests of Abkhazia. Abkhazia. No, it's not a realm from Lord of the Rings. It's actually a real place, Abkhazia. There's a village there, just a normal little Russian village back in time, doing villager stuff, thatched huts, fire with a little pot over it, a metal pot. And then, you know, they're making stew and little kids are running around with little sticks, hitting each other, whatever. And so these two hunters, I don't know how many hunters, but anyways, these hunters come out of the woods and they're like, we caught one, we caught one. And everyone's like, what? what's going on? And hunters start leading a huge hairy woman into the camp at musket point or arrow point whatever they had 
ranged weapon pointed at her. And she, the, that's, that's actually going to be in really bad taste when I reveal this, but she comes walking in. They have her captured. She's taller than anyone else there. She's very, very strong, they say, but they don't say how they know that. I don't know if she was like snapping necks in the woods or knocking over trees. But anyways, these Russian hunters captured an Alma, a large Bigfoot-esque beast of the Mongolian region. Now, this is how they're normally listed. They can be between five, which isn't super tall, but between five to six and a half feet. They actually have a lot of Neanderthal-like features. Pronounced brow, flat nose, weak chin. This one was covered in hair. Sometimes they're hairy. Sometimes they're super hairy. Sometimes they're just normal hairy. Sometimes they're just like Italian hairy. But anyways, this one comes in. And they you know, they got it at ranged weapon point. And they're like, well, what do we do with this thing? I mean, this thing is monstrous. It's one of the Almas. We can't really let it go because then it might like just start bashing us in. But we can't really keep a prisoner here because it's so strong. But the village elders go... That we can't let it go. At least in this town, we know where it's at at all times. Now, there was something about it that they thought, maybe we can communicate with it. So they tried speaking to it in whatever language. I don't think they were speaking Russian that far out in the in the area, but probably they were speaking something. And they tried speaking something to this creature, and it wouldn't say anything. It wouldn't say anything. It was mute. It would just make noises. So they're like, okay, well, we can't tell it not to kill us if it sees us out in the woods. So our safest bet is to keep it isolated in this village. We'll just keep it prisoner. Now, what's bizarre is this is the story we have. We have them capturing the Alma. They name it Zana. And then we have 40 years later. She was prisoner for 40 years. And in that time period, one of the tribe members, I believe one of the elders, but one of the tribe members, fell in love with Zana, this massive, hairy beast. that they, they, they considered it a beast. They considered it a beast. And he fell in love with it. And he wooed it. And had sex with it. So he's banging this mythical creature that they have always been leery of in this area. And they have four kids. Four kids. Two of the sons lived long enough to have children of their own. And I believe two of them died fairly early. And after 40 years of captivity, now married to this dude, now raising kids, still never said a word. The children could talk. Children could totally talk fine, but Zana never said anything. But after 40 years, eventually, love conquers all but death, and Zana passes away. This story has been very popular in Russian... Mongolian circles to the point that scientists said, you know what, we really need to figure out what Zana was. Let's get DNA from her descendants. Like, and then it'll show. Was she a humanoid? Was she something else? So, a couple years ago, they did it. They got DNA from her grandson, and I think they actually might have had her tooth. I'm a little iffy on that. They got DNA from some of her grandchildren, and they look at it, and they're like, hmm, okay. 
let me let me run these numbers again because this is not a good story if this is true and they're looking at the numbers and they're like kind of holding the report upside down and they're like uh this is not what we thought now every so often we'll find bigfoot hair and they run it to a laboratory and it's a dog or they'll find a Bigfoot print and they'll start analyzing it and it turns out to that like this is obviously a fake. This is the worst example ever, ever, of you running a test on a Bigfoot type creature and it coming back as something else. Because basically the story people have been telling for close to 100 years about how this Russian town had captured a Alma turns out that when they do the when they did the test on the grandson and they ran all the numbers that the creature who was described as a large hairy creature who couldn't talk and roamed around and was prisoner for 40 years was a black woman that's that's what they caught they caught a black woman in the woods and they kept her prisoner for 40 years and had a bunch of babies and she never said a word. They wouldn't let her do nothing. Except, you know, run around. And, yeah. That's, I mean, there's... <laughs> people, generally people who are racist are like, yeah, I'm racist, I'm totally cool with it. Being accidentally racist is the worst. Like, at least the person who's who's just like, oh, no, I'm totally racist, I don't like those races. Okay. But when you're accidentally racist, it's kind of worse because you don't think you're being racist. Trapping... A, a black person for 40 years because you think they're a monster is the worst example of being accidentally racist I've ever seen. So apparently what happened was they run, ran the test and they said she would have been 100% sub-Saharan African. And there were a bunch of, they had just freed a bunch of slave, like slavery ended in Russia, I believe two years prior to this. So there was a bunch of free slaves running around in the, in, in Russia in general. But in that particular area, they figure that she must have just gotten lost from, like, who she was with or was just wandering around. She ran into these hunters who were probably smaller, who who probably were physically smaller than her. I don't know where the hair thing comes from, why they kept describing her as super hairy, but they saw this tall black woman and they're like, oh, you must be a monster. And they captured her. They captured her and they held her prisoner for 40 years. And then for decades and 100 years, people were telling the story about this town that caught this Bigfoot. Now, that story in and of itself, accidental racism aside, the story of the Almas is even more fascinating than that. There's a reason why they said this must be an Alma. I'm going to keep going back to Bigfoot literature here. In Bigfoot literature... It is, it, the Native Americans saw it as this spirit creature, and when the Westerners came here, they've seen it as this one-off, maybe in a group of three or four type of creatures that are spotted, but there's no proof ever found. There's, there's maybe one video clip, some blurry photos, stuff like that. The Almas are amazingly documented. Not in modern times, which is what makes it interesting. Like I said, it was the description of a Neanderthal. Pronounced brow, flat nose, weak chin. How would somebody in the Middle Ages know what a Neanderthal looked like? We know what they look like now because we have recreations and drawings of them. But they shouldn't have had those back then. They didn't have forensic anthropology. They shouldn't have been able to say, this creature looks just like this type of human that it used to exist. 
unless they were seeing them then. There's this book. There's this book. It is a Tibetan medicinal book. There is a drawing of an Alma and a description of the Alma. Everything else in that book is a plant or an animal that lives today and can be verified. That book has no mythological creatures in it at all. No dragons, no Groot slangs, nothing. Deer and uh, tigers and berries and bananas and whatever. Everything in that book is scientifically verifiable. You can see it today except for the Alma. So that makes people think, why would you write this huge... It would basically be if you picked up Grey's Anatomy and you flipped through it and on page 84 was an elf. And then you went to the next page and it was a thorax. That's how this book was set up. It was 100%. Everything we can... Well, 99% we can verify exists except for this creature. And it wasn't... The Almas weren't a solitary, small group type of thing. In 1420, there was a guy named Hans... Schlittberger. He was taken prisoners by the Mongols. He's Tate brought back, being brought back to the Khan. Here was his quote. He survived long enough to write a book and talk about his journeys. But as there, imagine you're in a caravan coming through a the steppes of Mongolia. So your car, your your carriage is all bumpy because they can't drive it right. It's like one wheel's on one step, one wheel's on the other. You're coming through this, and you're this Westerner, and you look out the window. And this is what you see. On the same mountain, there are savages who are not like other people, and they live there. They are covered all over the body with hair, except the hands and face, and run about like other wild beasts in the mountain, and also eat leaves and grass and anything they can find. The lord of the country sent to Edigi, a man and a woman from among these savages, that had been taken in the mountain. So... We have another instance of these creatures being captured, but you're, he's looking at them. He's seeing a, basically a herd, a tribe, a village, whatever word you want to use for these beasts. These Neanderthal-like beasts being sighted in the year 1420, when Hans was a captive. So, did these creatures exist? I think, if anything, these probably, I mean, we don't have photos of them now, but it's in a super remote area. It's one thing to be walking through Oregon and see a Bigfoot. It's another thing to have to endure the harshness of the Mongolian landscape just to get a photograph, and they probably just beat you to death. Actually, it's funny. They keep getting captured, so they're probably really sucky at combat, and they eat leaves and grass, so I don't know like how strong they really could be. But they also eat like other animals as well. My main diet wouldn't be leaves and grass if I was a cryptid. It's kind of a... You want to you have sharp teeth to eat people. But anyway, so these cre- I mean, these creatures are probably the best bet we have for proving that there's some sort of Bigfoot-esque creature. And one last story to wrap up the Alma mystery. I, I think probably they did exist at some point. I think the description's too accurate to things we do know existed, i.e. in Neanderthals. I do think they existed at some point in very, very modern history. And at this point, they could have been completely wiped out or gone underground or something like that. But one last interesting tidbit to this. In 1941, when Germany invaded Russia, the Red Army captured a spy, a big, hairy spy, who wouldn't talk, wouldn't say anything. And the Russians blew his brains out. Because what else are you going to do? You're getting invaded. You're, you, you see someone that you don't... He's not a local. He's not Russian. He's a big, hairy dude. He's not talking to you, so they shoot him. 
And there's always been the idea that that also could have been an Alma, because he was a wild man, couldn't speak, covered in hair. I know the Germans were pretty savvy on their, you know, spying, but I don't think they're like, hey, Gruber, over there, make sure you don't shave for a while and run around in the woods and maybe you can pick up some intel. They probably caught an Alma. Here's the weird thing, really. The world is so vast that you can have entire tracts of land that are not explored or haven't been visited by humans in a long, long time. There are forests and jungles and plains and caves that we know of or might not, but we don't go to them. To those to uh, to those cryptids, to the Almas, who are in hiding, still having their civilization somewhere, we are the cryptids. Every so often, they may catch a glimpse of a human, or look up and see a plane, and that's their cryptid. That's their legend. Those are their creatures that keep them up at night. Us. This kind of plays into the whole missing 411 thing, like, when we go when when humans go into the woods, we are now on their turf. When we go into these vast plains, we're now on their turf. When we move out of civilization, we are on the turf of the cryptids. And it makes you wonder how many humans have been kidnapped and held prisoner for 40 years in these dark, hidden, remote villages. We never hear their stories. They would just vanish. And in that village, they would tell their children the time that they caught the small person with weak limbs to prove the story's true, that we really existed. DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash deadrabbitradio. Twitter is at Jason O. Carpenter. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great weekend, guys. Peace.